Maybe the man says, I, I am attracted to this particular woman as my wife, but I lack a generalized attraction to women. All of that still goes in a male direction. Um, and so in that vein, meet Bob, my covenant friend. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm here today with a slightly expanded version of the usual crew, Matt and Ann Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church in Hilton Head, South Carolina. The reason we're slightly expanded today is that we have a special guest on the pod, Pethel McGrew. She has a PhD in math, is a school teacher, has written for First Things, The Critic, Plow, National Review, amongst others. She also has her own Substack, Further Up, Notes from a Christian Humanist, which you should all subscribe to immediately. Bethel, we are so excited to have you with us today. Thanks so much, Nick. Great to be here. So we asked you to come on with Anne especially this week because you have both done work, uh, blogs, tweet threads, articles, etc. on an organization called Revoice, which according to its mission statement, for those who don't know, exists, quote, to support and encourage gay, lesbian, bisexual, and other same-sex attracted Christians, as well as those who love them, so that all in the church might be empowered to live in a gospel unity while observing the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality. Now, we've talked about Revoice on Stand Firm before, and the ACNA, actually, the church's that we all work at has a strange relationship to Revoice. Bishops of the ACNA are on record with a pastoral statement on sexuality and identity, which runs counter to much of what it seems Revoice believes. But at least one ACNA minister in good standing is on the Revoice Advisory Council. So that brings us to today's conversation. Anne wrote an article about a month ago for the Christian Research Institute called Spiritual Friendship, Temptation or Belonging, and you've got a piece on so-called Side B Christianity coming out in First Things any day now, a piece at which you have graciously given us a sneak peek. So let's talk revoice, talk spiritual friendship, talk Side B, and talk about the extent to which a biblically faithful Christian can align themselves with this ideology. So Bethel, why don't you start us off by briefly tracing the trajectory of Revoice and the spiritual friendship side B movement. You and Anne were both early on the this isn't going anywhere good side of things, uh, but what might have been attractive about Revoice to biblical Christians in the beginning and what's going on with Revoice now? Sure. So the, the phrase side B has sort of an odd history, it goes really all the way back to the 90s. And originally just sort of very vaguely meant any Christian who believed that homosexual acts were wrong. So that was a big tent, as you can imagine. But then getting into the 2000s, and I think 2010 being an important turning point with the release of West Hill's book, Washed and Waiting, and then the launch of the Spiritual Friendship Group blog in April 2012, it sort of marked a, a shift in the discourse from, you know, where previously the anti-affirming stance was largely represented by more ex-gay Christians, people affiliated with ministries like Exodus. There was a shift to so-called celibate gay Christians, Christians who um, by and large had never even been sexually active, but experienced same-sex attraction and felt like it was time for a new paradigm. And so the word revoice was you know, very self-consciously chosen as sort of a call, a wake-up call for churches out with the old, in with the new. We have to do away with therapeutic models. Um, we have to just accept that same-sex attractions are ingrained. They're not going to go away. So instead of thinking about how we can cure our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters, we have to move towards a model of care. And so this, this had an attraction because there were a number of flaws with those older models. The sort of outsourcing parachurch model okay, well, let's just send you to an Exodus conference or whatever, maybe they can fix you or something. It had its issues. There was some prosperity gospel theology in there that, that was did some harm and had a lot of things that could be legitimately said against it. And so there was an attraction in just trying something else. And the Christians who sort of jump-started this project seemed like they were reasonable, seemed like they were mature, they could, they were in good faith, they could have 
some back and forth dialogue. And so I think there was a sort of cautiously friendly spirit in early days, like, okay, let's, let's hear what they have to say and see if we can build something new. But then the issue is that as time has gone on, the problems inherent in the project have made themselves more and more manifest. And I'm arguing in my forthcoming piece that I think to a great extent, you can see early warning signs, even in that foundational material. So that's my sort of little potted history of side B and revoice. Oh, and, and what revoice was, was a conference that sort of um, grew out of a lot of writing and books and articles that had been happening in the years prior. And then 2018 was the inaugural session. So now we're into 2022 and a lot of cracks, uh, fault lines are emerging. I, I do think it's interesting you point the genesis of all this with the publication of West Hill's book, because um, he it was a, a professor at Trinity School for Ministry at the time. And I was, uh, Nick and I both are alumni of the school. And I was, I, I'm now subsequently on the board. And I think, I think you could probably follow the trajectory of the entire self-consciously uh, or, or the, the the idea of a Christian identity being defined around one's sexuality through the progression of Washington Waiting, then the Spiritual Friendship blog, then the book Spiritual Friendship, and then the fruit of all that was the Revoice Conference. And so I think it's it was a fascinating thing to to live through because I remember initially Washington Waiting uh, receiving it very uh, warmly, yeah. um, and we you know were very encouraged by that and in fact uh, quite inspired you know i said I, I don't i didn't then and i don't now think that christian celibacy is a, a burden too heavy to carry i mean that's that's sort of the our thing you know from the beginning but that being said i did think that people who were who were as it were going to be constrained to a life of celibacy it was was quite inspiring um and so i thought I thought that book was beautiful. And then it began to manifest in ways that I think, you know, carried, it was carried along by the culture, most notably, you know, the rise of the various identities. And then when Obergefell was codified and then, and it was just, you know, I think that it was, it was a book of its time that had the the potential of being countercultural and, but instead, you know, the entire movement sort of just was carried along by the, by the, by the culture. And I think it was disappointing to watch, to put it, to put it lightly. I remember being so consumed with a fight in, in the Episcopal Church or with the Episcopal Church over you know, active, you know, I guess, side A, um, that a lot of the language around side B just kind of slipped past my radar. I didn't, when, when someone saying, was, was telling, I remember people telling me, I, I, I identify as gay, but I'm going to be celibate. And I thought, oh, okay, well, that, that's fine. I didn't catch, I didn't catch how that. Layers, yeah. Right, right, right. So, and I thought, okay, that's safe. It's, that's okay. I, I'm going to focus exactly. on the. I think a lot of people were, were in your shoes there. But it didn't, right. mean, it didn't mean the same thing, though. I mean, I remember having co conversations with the late, uh, now late, Bishop John Rogers up at Trinity. And the idea that he, and we, we kept circling around this idea that, that how could you be defined by uh, a sexuality? You know, there was such a novel, relatively novel concept. You know, if you didn't do it, if you weren't at practicing, well, then how could you call yourself anything but you know, just a Christian. And so it was really, there was a real disconnect. And I think that, I think to be fair to, to, to you, Matt, to be, to be fair to most of us, it was that the, the idea of defining your, your very essence of your identity around a desire is a relatively you know, modern concept. Yeah. I mean, it was 10 years ago, that was not what we were hearing because that's not an idea that we could have even fathomed. And unfortunately, Hill played a big role in that. I mean, there was one particular often cited blog post that he wrote at Spiritual Friendship, where he talked about how being gay sort of suffused every part of who he was, who he was attracted to, who he wanted to be friends with, his aesthetics, his preferences, you know, all of these different things. And I think blogs like that uh, were very telling, and they served as something that could be used in counterpoint to what you might have heard, which was, oh, all I mean when I say I'm a gay Christian is it's, it's like saying I'm a left-handed Christian or blue-eyed Christian. It's just a phenomenological reality about the experience that I have as a sexual being. But posts like that by Hill and a lot of other materials showed, nope, there's really, there's a lot more baggage attending this. Yeah, I think that was probably one of the most offensive aspects of it was that there were, there were aesthetic claims, you know, uh, style, uh, sort of affections and things that were that were claimed to be somehow enhanced or uniquely affected by your sexual desires that I thought were 
you know, just down through history, were just simply not true. I but, thought that was regressive. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, we're going backwards yeah. or forward. I have a question about that aesthetic idea. Nate Collins talks about and it's, that it's really an aesthetic orientation, and it's an it's an orientation to beauty, and that people in the LGBTQIA spectrum have a orientation to beauty that supersedes and is better than a regular one, basically, in his book. And I'm just curious what you, I don't know if anybody else has read his book. Is it his argument that that's unique to the gay male or is it? And female. female. Okay, okay. Yeah, but both ways. Right. But you, but a person who's attracted to somebody of the same sex is oriented to that person's beauty in a deep and almost mystical way that people who are heterosexual don't understand and that it it's it is it's an orientation to beauty and it is therefore good i'm just curious what you if you came across that beth ellen what you thought of it and i i mean that's the part where i i thought oh that's quite a claim and i didn't see any footnotes or anything to back that up there there was no index in his yeah <laughs> it felt like a just a really big jump into wide open space and i'd like to know what everybody thought of that thinks of that so i haven't actually read nate's book but i'm f- very familiar with that idea you can see it in other spiritual friendship guys stuff that west hill has written is very much in that vein as well that this is what could sort of be saved out of same-sex attraction if you will right that you know this in itself is not sinful and so maybe this, you know, we can sort of work with this, we can sublimate this, we can kind of turn this to, or channel it to good purposes. But it is something unique about same-sex attraction, like you're saying, it's, it's, a, it's something that people who are just, you know, really close straight male friends can't quite understand in the gay male experience, right? And similarly for women. So that's that's where you get this um, this tension of well is is my same sex attraction uh, a wound that I'm suffering with or is it a gift that you know gives me some kind of unique sensibility or unique ability that I can bring to the church and so that then if the church closes off certain vocational channels for me then they are denying my gifting as a as a gay Christian. I mean the idea sounds almost Greek that you know the, the, the two two men. Kinda, yeah loving one another is is a kind of it's a, it's a higher form of a higher form of love than anything that could exist between a man and a woman it's a, that sounds very i mean i guess if there's no footnotes but that that's not a new idea i don't think but it's also it's also a very unchristian when i, I would well, suggest, it's also founded on the idea that the male is the superior being right that's, yeah that's, that's why, why they would think that no i don't think i mean I, this I, this apparently goes both ways lesbians yeah. have the same ability that Normal women don't, and men have gay men have the ability that normal men don't. But but yeah, it's it, that, within the Greek idea, it was because males were the full human beings, and females were not quite there. So I did, I did. I mean, I read Nate, I read Nate Collins' book, and I, speaking as a woman, I found it. <laughs> I don't know minutes. how much he investigated the sort of same sex female attracted world. Uh, but I I found a, it very hard not to be thinking about his wife the whole time that I was reading the book where he was it was a 300 page discursus about how much he loves other men. And <laughs> if my husband had written a book like that, I wouldn't have, you know, enjoyed our communal life together as much <laughs> as I probably do now. But I felt like it was very <laughs> narrow, like Nate Collins doesn't have a very broad view of the whole spectrum of human hu- humanness. You know, he's very focused on one kind of thing. And so that one thing must be so beautiful. And I, you know, I, I just thought it was an, an interesting claim. And I think not that we're, we're not supposed to notice things the other way, but you know, if a, if a heterosexual man gets on and starts, starts talking about his orientation to beauty, well, I mean, I would say that's, probably fine but people would probably be offended i don't know it's just yeah right and and i think um i was rereading an old blog by matthew lee anderson at mere orthodoxy who i mean he was kind of an early enthusiastic enabler i want to say of the the site b project he he had what i thought was a very naive blog about 
teasing apart all these different strands so, so that, well, you could sort of notice somebody, right? You could notice their beauty when they walk into a room. So there's an attraction in that sense, but it's not sexual, right? Um, and I, to me, and I mean, it just sort of boggled my mind that a, a married man could write that post, I guess, because it's like, of, of course, it's sexual in a sense. I mean, just because, and, and one phrase that you'll see in my side material is genital attraction versus uh, non-genital attraction, right? It's just a really strange, awkward way of teasing this stuff apart. And I mean, that's, people don't work that way. Yeah, of course, there's, there's a sexual component, you know, whether you're having a hyper explicit fantasy about somebody's body or not. Well, I think we can agree at the at the very least that Side B Project is a cool name for a band. <laughs> but no, I agree. So with is you genital entirely. attraction. <laughs> that's, that's, that's that's the side that's the side B of yes. the side B project. Uh, that's the <laughs> well, I think you know I've I've talked about this before, and it's exactly to your point, Beth. Beth, excuse me, that um that uh you know it's sort of the victory, the final victory of Freud, that like we can't define our relations without them being like explicitly sexual. Like it doesn't have, like we, we can't, we can't appreciate sort of attraction and beauty and sort of the complicated reality that really is human um, experience of that, which is why we bind it with, you know, men and women in marriage, because there's a fence put up, but, but beyond that, you know, when we're considering our desires in our, in our lives, like the idea that we, we, we can't think of things without um, making it overtly sexual is really a, a, a capitulation to the to the lie that our sexuality is constitutive of, of is, is our, the base and most formative desire we have. Well, it's interesting you should say that because I, I think the way that side B people would come back is they would say, oh, hey, no, we're, we're rejecting Freud as well. We're the ones who are, you know, at least some of them are, are trying to say that you could have an aesthetic attraction that's different from a sexual attraction. You're the ones, our critics are the ones who are uh, saying, mm. no, this is all, there's, you know, there, there's a sort of a sexual element to all of this, right? This is where, so this is where it gets tricky, I think, because they, I think what they were trying to do is, you know, like with all of this resourcement about spiritual friendship and same sex intimacy, quote unquote, but not the sexual kind of intimacy, right? It's, it's like they were, and, and you've written about this too, it's like they were trying to kind of recover all of this literature and say, see, we're just trying to explore the ways that people can be friends, right? Let's recover friendship. Let's save friendship from the sexual revolution. The problem is that this project was all happening in a context of people who did in fact experience a sexual kind of attraction to the same sex. So it couldn't just be appropriated and superimposed that way. There was like a fundamental tension there. So Anne, maybe you can speak more to that. I, I did think, it, I mean, it's a worthy idea to, to recover friendship. I, 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 it's, a, it's a true critique that modern people don't ha know how to have friends. In fact, I, as I was working on, the, on my piece, um, somebody said, Melanie at CRJ, said that there's a new app for people who, are, who try to find friends because Tinder or whatever, people don't know how to have friends or find friends or be friends. That's completely gone by the wayside. And so that is a true thing. But how how curious that the people who suddenly want to recover friendship are people who have a deep sexual attraction to people of the same sex. So well, total coincidence, pure chance. Yeah. I just don't, you know, it, I, I, the phrase that has gone through my head throughout is, has always been, I wasn't born yesterday and neither was God or anybody in the church. We are not that naive. And so I'm sorry. I, there are other ways to recover friendship and they must be done. The church has a lot to repent for, but even that being the case, you can't do it this way. And the people who are telling you that you can't do it this way aren't telling you that because they hate you. They're telling you that because they love you and they would like to be your friend, incidentally. Okay, so how did that, how would they respond to, and I, I, I've always thought this, and I don't know if I've ever had a chance to speak to someone who is in the Revoice movement about this in particular, but you know, if I told Anne, all right, I'm trying to, I'm going to try and recover friendship with this woman, you know, down the street. And so I'm going to enter into this very deep binding fast 
uh, friendship. We may even hold hands. Um, you know, we won't nothing sexual. And you'll I'm take vows. Take vows. Yeah, I'll take vows of friendship together. That's right. Yeah, I think she's beautiful, and I'm deeply attracted to her. But it's not sexual. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I and would that wouldn't go and that wouldn't go very far. How would they respond to that? Because if you try to if you try to switch that into a heterosexual framework, it doesn't work. So it's very interesting you should ask that because that's exactly yeah. what um, Elizabeth Brunick asked Eve Tushnet in I forget what year it was, but they did an interview about this for the American Conservative, uh, where Eve was hyping the whole vowed friendship thing for people of the same sex, and so that Brunick was like. Okay, but then hypothetically, what if it, just like you're saying that, what if a man wanted to do this with a woman, not his wife? And he just sort of said something vague about how, no, I don't think that would work. Well, okay, then say more. And she wasn't really pressed on that or, or forced to yeah, reveal the, the tensions there. But obviously, that's the question that has to be asked, especially if you're talking about one of these so-called mixed orientation marriages where maybe the man says, I am attracted to this particular woman as my wife, but I lack a generalized attraction to women. All of that still goes in a male direction. Um, and so in that vein, meet Bob, my <laughs> covenant friend. <laughs> you know, like, so yeah. Is, is it, there, wasn't there a couple featured at Reboy Sand that, that uh, this last conference where they, there was a, a youth minister and his male friend Yes. Who were into some kind of covenant bond and then two years yeah. ago, actually. Yeah. Right. Well, okay. And they were saying, if we get married, or if this what if, if my straight friend here gets married, then I'm just gonna be along with them for the ride. I'm gonna move in with them. And, right. Is that yeah, there was an interview. Uh AD Robles took it apart, I think. Well, he didn't say anything, he just played the interview and laughed through it. But uh the person in charge of community Classic. life, Arch, I can't say his lot, I can't pronounce his last name. Very prior did a long interview with this person, this young man who they have a quote, spiritual friendship. And that interview I, I is so disturbing because neither person is self-aware at all. They're both, their, their commitment to their own naiveness is profound. It goes into the depths and any, any person who was allowed to speak into their lives with any sense would say, I'm sorry, you guys, you're not allowed to be friends because one of you is attracted to the other one and this is going to be a mess. And yeah. no woman would should go near that. Uh, so, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. I, I watched that. I, it, it's been taken down off of YouTube. Most of their material is not on YouTube anymore. It's behind a paywall on their site. But I watched that as well. And like you, Anne, I was just thinking, is there nobody around these two guys who can say, stop, this is a deeply unhealthy codependent situation that you have going on here. Um, and the, the the gay man in the relationship, Pereira, was so obviously gaslighting the the straight man who, you know, was being, I'll just say, he was being conditioned <laughs> to say the right things and respond in the right ways and be an ally and be appropriately sensitive and all of these things. And also to bind himself in all of these emotional relational ways to to this guy who then, as you were saying, if the straight man got married, then the gay friend was saying, we, plural we, would be making decisions as a family together. How is that anyway? <laughs> yeah. I, ima I imagine that the casuistry runs strong here, but how is Jesus's admonition that someone who lusts has already committed adultery how how is that actually dealt with in an, any kind of intellectually honest way so i feel like i've been talking a lot sorry I, but um i think i know what they would say because i've i've been watching these guys for a while i think what they would say is they would define lust uh in this really indulging the feeling yeah they would or or explicitness they would kind of circumscribe it that way. So um, again, am I am I fixating on this person's body or genitalia? Am I allowing myself to become aroused by this person? Right? You know, some really crude, explicit form of that. But all kinds of other things that fall just short of that, I think, still qualify as as sinful. And maybe this is where uh, this is where a female perspective could be useful because women don't. You know, the, the way that women tend to fall into sexual sin of the mind is different from the way that men tend to fall into sexual sins of the mind. And so, you know, I think, I think as, 
as women, we know that there are ways that we can objectify men, which you know you could say it, it overlaps with the sin of covetousness, right? Um, and it's it's not an explicit sexual fantasy, but it's still a form of of lust, a, a form of um, a kind of a sexual possessiveness, and, uh, and so there's a sort of I would say a willful refusal to acknowledge that, I think, in that paradigm. Can I ask, uh, when I've, I've been fascinated to see, and this is maybe something a little bit outside of spiritual friendship, but it, it's, it's, it's connected. I've been fascinated to see how the trans movement has changed mm. the whole conversation. Um, so just, the, I think the, in Revoice 21, we heard one person use pronouns, but then this last, the last Revoice 22, I mean, it was all about the pronouns. So, I mean, how, that I think, in my in my view, I, I thought Revoice was already in spiritual friendship growth already outside the outside the camp. But the 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 full embrace of gender queer categories, I thought, you know, really sends them over um, outside <laughs> outside the boundaries. How does that affect though this whole? I mean, doesn't spiritual friendship and uh, the whole point of revoice doesn't that kind of hinge on a binary of some sort, uh, on a sexual binary? Well, I mean, that's <laughs> that's that's the same question that dogs um, LGBTQ yeah. in general does it not? Of which I'm I'm sorry to say that revoice is now kind of a um, you know, a subsidiary. So uh, yeah, definitely it's right as as you mentioned the, the pronouns thing was already getting going last year. There there was. Um, the director of donor relations for Posture Sift, which is like a, a partner ministry, she appeared with chosen pronouns they them, and there was another speaker who um, talked about how the attendees had stickers where they would write their chosen pronouns and how cool this was to see, along with various fabulous hairstyles and wardrobe choices. Um, so that was already there a year ago, and I feel like I don't know if there was as much of a widespread awareness of that. I wrote something for Icon and wrote her article, of course. Um, but it feels like only this year, maybe with the World Magazine article, that a lot of people are kind of waking up to this and going, well, I mean, yeah, this is like you were, like you were saying, it was already there a year ago. How, how, so would you could perceivably have within the side B community, you could have maybe a man, I'm sorry, a woman who identifies as a man in a spiritual friendship with a man who's an actual man, and that's all still side B, right? I mean, that's just, it, it, it's now- So many of these things. Well, and I mean, the thing is, probably we, uh, this might be a good place to mention the affinity groups. Um, I think it, it, it was a thing last year, it was certainly a thing this year, where the attendees would be broken into little splinters based on all kinds of identifying markers, like, okay, the asexuals will meet over here, um, the black queer people will meet over here, the Asians will meet over here, right? Um, and, and so how there's endless ways to divide and subdivide things here, you know, like you're saying, what is there, is there a limiting point <laughs> to all of this? Right. I remember having conversations with colleagues back when we were in the Episcopal Church who were, um, jumping on the same-sex marriage uh, liturgical train very quickly and uh, and unsurprisingly. And I remember talking to them, I say, okay, let me let, and one of the arguments, the sort of more moderate argument at the time was we're bringing into order, you know, that which was disordered in terms of fornication and sort of multiple partners. So we're going to sort of normalize this relationship. And so it can be God-given and all these things. And I said, okay, well, I, I disagree with you on this. But I'll grant you that premise for, for the sake of argument. So, you know, you can give me a liturgy that just says, well, you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband, you know, and will you take this man? Like, write me a liturgy and explain to me from the Bible that where the, the B comes in, where the bisexuality comes in. And give me a give me a liturgy, like help show me how that sort of, you know, is put into order, what is disordered, and then tell me what that sort of looks like, you know, within the life of the church. Because there's all this flowery language around marriage, of course, that was just co-opted by, um, by, you know, same-sex uh, people. And there was never a sufficient answer. It was like, that was, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was almost a conversation stopper. Uh, and that was even before you had the, the T and then the destruction of the quote-unquote binary in, in, involved in all of this. 
And the hard part for us, and we've talked about this for years now, you know, on this podcast, even the hard part for us has been how completely obvious from the very first um, conference, this trajectory has been like, it's been, it's been 100% obvious. And like, Anne, <laughs> you said before, you know, like we weren't born yesterday. It's, it's, you know, it's like um, Mugabe and Zoolander taking crazy pills. You know, this is what it's like. This is, this is unsurprising. This was, this was said, we are on record and it's just, um, I guess I'm grateful for, if, if that means anything in this case, cause it's, it's sad, but that with the exposure that like you've been bringing and Anne's been bringing with the other people that finally people are waking up to the fact that, you know, these, these aren't people that, you know, we have compassion for them. Like, I mean, I, I we're pastors, you know, we, we care about people with, with um, what we would say disordered desires and their, their attempt to, 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 to struggle with that. But this was never going to be the right way. And it's just been proven time and time again. Yeah, well, and right in 2018, in Nate Collins' closing keynote, I think he set the tone for the whole discourse because it was this very aggrieved, aggressive, angry kind of a tone, like we are prophets. We have been victimized. And at this point, it's the church's job to basically sit down and shut up and listen to us, right? Um, So this this was not passive. This was very aggressive. And it was it was right there all along. And something you've been pointing out too, uh, Bethel, is that the this is coincided with this rise in this sort of idolatry talk, particularly the idolatry of the nuclear family, mm-hmm. the idolatry yes. of of you know heterosexuality. With this all this idolatry that surrounds you know what otherwise yesterday was simply traditional Christian um, outlook and worldview, and it's no it's no coincidence with that aggression that you started to see not just a, a hey let, give me space to live, but we're actually going to come after and start deconstructing you know these mm-hmm. traditional family structures that um, have that that are well I would say initial, essential to a certain degree to faith and family, and so it's it's all part of a whole. I mean you're exactly right, and you've written a lot about that too. I, I remember I think that might have been why we started following you on Twitter when you were you were um when i guess was when david brooks came out with his takedown of the nuclear family you, you said something about that i think or, or maybe i'm i'm getting confused at any rate um <laughs> it's a compliment that you are you're in that that mind that space in my head that i wonder what beth else going to say about this because i'm sure it's insightful and um appropriately uh has the right the right tone of humor yeah. and insightful criticism well thank you thank you it's very kind of you so i was just going to say um so right at the nate in his book very explicitly, so you, you used the word disorder a moment ago. Um, Nate very deliberately, very consciously takes that concept of disorder, and then he tries to create this sort of level playing field where he goes, all attractions outside of, uh, of a monogamous male-female marriage are disordered, right? And so I'm not sure how he proposes that boys are supposed to meet girls in the first place, um, <laughs> but so... It's, it's as if he'll say, well, okay, maybe maybe I'll accept the language of disorder, but only if I get to reframe it on my terms. I wanted to ask you guys something. Well, first, I need to say that it's Mugatu in Zoolander, not Mugabe, who's an African dictator. I'm sure about- that's a very common mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you guys about the practice of it seems, I'm, I'm sure you can find examples on all sides of every issue of this, but it seems especially prevalent in this kind of crowd of accusing somebody who has a problem with your argument of denying your right to exist or claiming you don't have value as a human being or pushing you to suicide, this sort of guilt tripping, gaslighting sort of thing where where just the the act of raising a question turns you into a you know hateful potential murderer and is there is there possible conversation on these fronts or is this just becoming a thing that is so calcified that it'll be impossible to even discuss yeah a conversation stopper i yeah. think it's part of the reason that it's so calcified is because it's not just a gender ideology ideology that's been completely, you know, swallowed whole. It's uh, at the same time a rejection of the sufficiency of scripture. So, Christian doctrine 
as and the Bible as a foundation of life and faith is not sufficient anymore for people in Revoice. They will either read texts badly, very badly, or not refer to them at all. And you can tell that nobody is really worried about the world to come. We are really, we have narrowed down to the human existence that is short in this life. And that's all that matters. There is no discussion about transcendence beyond the body and beyond this mortal life. And that's the part that has so made me despair. Because if you stop talking about heaven and hell, then you really are left with your pronouns. And so it's a tragic turn to the current moment and it's a terrible one. And the answer to revoice is to say, you need to read the scriptures again and you need to admit that hell is real mm. <laughs> and that yeah. people go there for exactly. a long time. <laughs> that, that's a great way of kind of framing all of this, right? Because um, when, when you try to say, look, I'm not going to use a 14-year-old girl's preferred pronouns. I'm sorry that she's confused. I'm sorry that she's in distress, that she's not comfortable in her body, right. but I can't validate this confused identity uh, because I'm concerned about her soul, right? Like you're saying, I'm concerned about her eternal destiny. Um, and so then if the response to that is just going to be, oh, well, fine, then when she commits suicide, it's going to be your fault. There is no sense of that, that fear more he that can destroy the soul than he that can destroy the body, like you're saying. Right. They they do use scripture though. I mean, they they. Uh, I remember the, listening, reading your piece, Anne, on on um, the not the not the most recent one, but the one on Revoice, where uh, Min, what was her name, the the, the keynote speaker of Revoice Twenty One, Missy Irons, right? So the, so the, and the and the heterosexual, the people who were not receiving Revoice, she cast as the Judaizers. Is yeah, that the Judaizers. Right. How did that work? How was that? What was <laughs> I don't know exactly how it worked, but she and Preston Sprinkle both used scripture in a way that offended, that personally offended me. I just, I just thought, I, I don't do it that. Sucked. It was so, it was so terrible. And with this kind of moral authority of tone, don't, you know, don't question me. I, I'm reading the Bible, but it was so contrary to anything that St. Paul would have ever in, intended by his words that, I couldn't deal, but because we were we we were the Judaizers because we're not receiving the the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, the uncircumcised, yeah. right? Without when we're demanding more of them than just mm -hmm. faith in Jesus Christ, right? They, um, they need so to become at, circumcised in their sexuality. So we're yeah, so we're okay. We're adding on adding to the gospel, and right there you see, right yeah. there you see the the nasty little straw man that um you know anybody who could ever possibly have an objection to the side B revoice project wants to take us back to um, the days of sort of crude prosperityism and ex-gay therapy. And if you don't turn straight and marry a woman, we failed, right? Uh, you know, so, um, which of course is not true and is a complete smear to straw man of everything that the critics of side B are saying. Sure, I wonder a lot um, in light of this conversation, you know, pastorally speaking, uh, what would be the expectation if someone came to you as, and said, you know, pastor, I have these, these sexual desires that, that I, I believe are contrary to scripture that I wish I didn't have. I'm married. I've got three kids. You know, the, the pastoral walking through of that would look a lot like um, prayers of, of deliverance it would look a lot like prayers of, of courage and strength in the midst of suffering and, and self-control and, and wisdom, you know, like, well, you probably shouldn't go here you probably shouldn't you know spend time there you sh i mean it, it and whether it was with unwanted attraction for someone of the same sex or just someone who wasn't your wife or you know or or you were overly obsessed as a single person you know for um with with lustful thoughts and urges you know these sorts of things i i i don't understand how in this world where you're supposed to i guess affirm this type of uh, desire to a certain degree you would actually act as a pastor. I mean, I, I, I'm genuinely interested because I, I personally know people um, and have have counseled people who have have come out of these same-sex attracted lifestyles and are in um, situations where they are very aware of how quickly one can um, backslide. You know, you can fall back into this lifestyle, and as a result, are teaching me about sort of um, ways of of um, of self 
you know, of, of awareness of self, you know, and I think that's, I, I just wonder, uh, we have wondered for, for years now, what, what, what you would supposed to say, let's say you buy into the entire revoice argument, I guess your answer simply would be, well, you know, welcome to your, your you need to love life. yourself more. Yeah. No, we're just mortification so, commit to this. That's picture. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. And then right. the whole, and then the whole, the whole argument we pointed out, Matt, that, that this sort of the counter argument, which is supposed to shut down all is like, you're going to consign these people to a life of celibacy, you know, you terrible monster. And it's like, I, I have people in my life in their, you know, late forties, early fifties, who are single people, single Christians who are fighting the same exact fight, you know, whether it was same sex attracted or not. I mean, that's a Christian reality. And right. to bring into question, even that is, is, is a, is, is what this whole revoice movement is doing. I do think that maybe some on before the revoice movement started before the, the, the present reality came to be, I do think that some had way too optimistic a view of, of the possibility of, of change. I guess I'm a, a pre-Puritan Calvinist, so I'm not too optimistic about, about human beings, you know, being totally sanctified or being sanctified all that much. So I think there are some sins that, that we're just going to, you're just going to live with. There's some, a sin predisposition that you're, you're never going to actually get rooted out. Maybe it'll get easier to manage, but I think that we should, I think that they overpromised some people that if you just follow this program, you're not going to feel these desires anymore and you're going to be totally free. And I believe that Jesus Christ can set anyone free from those, from any desire, should he desire to do so, but he doesn't always do it. And so, and so I think as a pastor, we have to tell people who are coming to us with any kind of besetting sin, look, right. you know, here's your, here's your recipe. You, you confess, you tell, you confess, you uh, ask the Lord to help you, you get back up and you try again and you go to communion and you read your Bible and you come to church and you do all the That's things right. you take, a, you take, take advantage of the means of grace that God has given us. Um, but this might be your burden for the rest of your life. And we all have something like that, maybe not to the same extent, but we all have something like that. And, but also in a key, key way, this is all the hell you'll ever suffer if you, if you love Jesus, yeah. like it's, it's bad. Sure. We hear you. It's tough, but this isn't, you know, it, it's not going to last that long. You are but a breath and, and there's better things coming later. You know, I, I know people don't, didn't like to think about things later, but it really is a, a collapse of, yeah. of Christian culture and in America and Christian communities that were able to suffer together or endure together. So I think it, it, it's interesting to me that it coincides with the severe isolation, which was promised to American people as a good. I, I just keep running across this phrase that unchosen obligations people were told that if they had to suffer an unchosen obligation they would literally die well now they are you know many of them are are cutting themselves apart or unable to deal at all and it's not true the christian message is that there's something better coming and we can go to it together and right. we can deny ourselves or we can help each other. And the collapse of that is just devastating for actual individual people. And uh, it's a great tragedy that in trying to fix that problem, Revoice is making it much worse for by continuing to lie about the solution to what it is. And, and I would also add to that, that the sectioning off of well, us same-sex attracted people are going to go over here and talk amongst each other and talk about our unique, special burden, struggle, whatever, whatever. And lost in that is, is well, I mean, okay, what about straight single people? Is their struggle not special enough? Um, you know, and I, okay, I, I speak as a straight single person. I, I, I don't think that I belong to any particular victim group. Um, but to your point, it's like you're cutting yourselves off from fellowship and community with the rest of the church, the, the rest of the body of believers, because you're so fixated on this sense of yourselves as, as an oppressed victim group, that you're, you're forming this alternative community, which I think is intention with the idea of overall body of Christ community. Yeah, I think that it's, um, and I, I attribute at least my 
grasp of this concept to JD here. We used to work together and he would say that the church is one of the only groups in your life that is not an affinity group. You yeah, are exactly. sitting in the pew next to somebody you may hold nothing in common with other than the depth of your sin and your need for a savior. And that's a, that is a necessary thing. And as we section each other off like this, we're, we're losing the ability for other people to speak into our lives, not only with bad news, but with good news too. To be fair, I got that from Tim Keller in his sermon in like 25 years ago. Um, but, you know, I find it, I, I find it on top of all that uh, distasteful. I mean, maybe this is just me, but like the, the idea of, of leading with your sexual desires, whether they're for same-sex people or with, for, for not, is just such an off, a destabilizing sort of yeah. off-putting uh, situation. Because I, I assume you're dealing, it's like I tell people when they're con- general confession, like I'm assuming that, you know, the general shape of human sinfulness, you know, the lusts of the flesh, the eyes and the pride of life, says John. So I can assume, but like, if you need to tell me, we have private confession, but in general, our general confession will take a certain shape. And so you can leave it here, leave it here at church and be absolved and go in peace to love and serve the Lord. But they have this, this constant discussion, you know, about about who you are sexually attracted to, yeah. whether you're celibate or not. I'm like, how tall are they? What kind of clothes do they wear? Who, who precisely are you attracted I mean, is no to? No one else just on that. I mean, it seems like an obvious fruit of the hypersexualization of our culture, but it, at the very least, you could just say, um, I don't really want to know this about you. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, I want you to just be, you know, if you're not married, and I'm assuming I'm making all sorts of charitable Christian assumptions about you. If you're not married, I'm assuming that you the same some would like to be at some point because if you're a Christian, because that will then normalize some sort of sexual desire. And if there's a disordered one there, then I'm I'm assuming you're wrestling with it in, in, in as good old Christian way as you can. And so if you need to confess something, do it if you don't. But it's just it's just heartbreaking is what it is, because you see these these discussions on Twitter and you see these, I mean, I watched a lot of the um, videos and have been following the blog for years now. And it's, 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 I mean, as a pastor, it's just heartbreaking because you say if these people, if if some of these guys really had friends, like real friends that they would tell them, like you said, Bethel, that this is not the way, this is just not the way. There's a social cultural plus if you can identify as something, right? It's it's not, it's not just a, 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 not just a sorrowful road. It's also a road of cultural. Well, that's why you uh, see the rise among, exaltation, among middle school and right? high school kids. Yeah. Too. So it's so like we were talking the other day in, in Christian Ed about, about the new, what's the class of person who's only uh, only going to have sex with those they're attracted to? Is it demisexual? Is that what it is? Demisexual. Yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah Demi romantic. Yeah, so your flag, so, and your flag, by the way, is just a, it's just a white piece of paper. So right there, it has a coffee can, stain on it. You know, but, that's so it. the average average Joe or average Jill can now be on the spectrum, right? You can now be you, know, you can you can put yourself on that rainbow flag somewhere, and you're a sexual minority now, and. And you have you have all the benefits that come with that, uh, and so I, there's there's a there's a there's a there's a, a pull toward that, a, a positive pull toward that, not positive in, in an ultimate sense, but a but a, a desire for something yeah, that you can get out yeah. of. It. Yeah. So, and so piggybacking off that, so so JD, I think um, yeah, you really touch on something important there, and and I think there's another there's a whole other discussion to be had about how that kind of ties into a broader evangelical tell-all culture, maybe. Um, you know, maybe even encouraging guys to share TMI about their heterosexual sins, possibly in some circles. Yeah, this is connected to the importance attached to coming out. And so around National Coming Out Day, which I forget what day it was this fall, but Psype Revoice people were doing all sorts of, you know, there was a panel discussion, they were tweeting about this, and how important it is to come out. Like, they will even do things where they'll, they'll connect it to the symbolism of baptism or resurrection, right? It's a, you know, this is where we get into queer theology and all that stuff. So it's, you know, it's the exact opposite of what you're saying. Like, can we have some discretion? Can we have, like, we don't have to tell everybody? No, it's like, it's actually vital. It's essential that you tell everybody about this aspect of who you are, because it is, it's like, like lying otherwise, if you don't. That's right. It's not being true to yourself. I mean, that's yeah, the, right. That's that's your favorite Carl Truman quote, right? Not the uh, religion of the authentic self. Um, yeah, yeah, is what we're watching play out in front of us, and it's um, it's definitely true. Yeah, I, I agree with you. 
Bethel about the oversharing, whether it's whatever sins it is, because some people I have had speak, um, you know, and they'll give sort of their testimony that was true as of like two weeks ago. Um, and I'm <laughs> leaving a little bit sort of a little cautious, more cautious around like, you know, because I'm, I'm aware with you, Matt, how um, how uh, quickly we can uh, we can slide back from the heights of our of our sanctified peaks. And so <laughs> it's just like, OK, buddy, let's um, let's take a deep breath there and, uh, you know, praise God. But uh, let's double down on prayer for, for you. In a weird way, I think it's the, this kind of view of the person is dehumanizing. You know, they they're concentrating on, you know, wanting people to be fully human and flourish. But by narrowing it down to such a single thing that apparently is also mutable, you know, but it's also immutable. It's dehumanizing. It takes it. It it makes people into less less than human. And they and they have so many fewer resources to become a full person. And I, that's another, you know, mark of how strange it is because I think most, most the, the, the stated goal is for people to become more fully human. And yet the further they go into this, the less people are able to be sort of fully human. If that was even a thing, I don't think that's, a thing that we should necessarily worry about, but as a stated goal, they're not doing a very good job. Yeah, and I, you especially feel this with um, with they them pronouns because it's completely drained of any humanizing touch, right? It's it's just like you're what you're a they. You're like an amorphous. You're not even an individual. What what does this mean? Um, and it's it was so sad to your point when Leslie Hudson Reynolds who identifies that way. When she gave her breakout session this year, she wore a t-shirt. It had a trans flag on it. And then over the trans flag were the words, Imago Dei. So what is this t-shirt saying? It's saying, if you deny me my chosen pronouns, my chosen identity, then you're denying my humanity. These things are one and the same. You cannot decouple them. And that's just, that's a lie from the pit of hell. I'm just going to say it. I mean, and I feel compassion for this woman. I've, I've heard, I know some of her story. She has a terrible backstory. She's, she, you know, trauma, all kinds of things. And so we can have compassion for that. But also she is leading people astray very badly, including a lot of younger people who need to be protected from that kind mm-hmm. of influence. I mean, speaking of dehumanizing and pronouns, it probably has not yet made it into the Revoice community, but with the Revoice slope, it's probably headed there eventually. You see, literally see people who are using pronouns that are inhuman. I saw someone on TikTok, not that I'm on TikTok, but I think I saw something shared. It was like, their pronouns were worm dirt. And there's all sorts of people who identify as birds and like the the dehumanization is literal maybe i'll get away from the pain if i'm actually not human yeah or the guy in matt walsh's was a woman who identifies as a wolf uh yeah a lot of that kind of stuff going on which i mean let's be honest a lot of that is just sort of downstream of kinks and gay male culture i mean there's anyway we won't go there but yeah true so okay another question just to i've noticed the language i want to say something first okay i just want this i've been wanting to say this for an hour the only reason i came here today is to say that the slippery slope is not a fallacy thank you (laughs) like it is not a it may be in some cases i don't know but the slippery slope is not a fallacy it's actually a a cliff (laughs) You, you kind of slide down and then you fall off a cliff and you, and it's very bad, but I just. I think people, I think it was mistake identifying a pattern and seeing where it most often ends up as employing a slippery slope argument. And that's not, that's not what people are doing when they're noticing the trajectory of a movement. So yeah, I th- thank you. But I was, okay. So I've noticed the, the, the stance toward side here, here, A yeah. from side B has changed. It was originally articulated to me by someone in Revoice. Um, we are side B. But we're trying to win over the side A and and let them believe, help them believe the gospel and and stop living in a way that's destructive. The last, I think, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but the last 
conference, Reverend Revoice conference seems to kind of be much lighter on that kind of thing. Side A is now, if I'm understanding it correctly, our, they are our brothers and sisters. They have, they understand this view differently than we do, but this is an in-house, in-church debate. Is that is that kind of how they talk about Side A now or am I making too much out of that? Well, I actually, I mean, I've seen that language I think is pretty old. I, I think okay. that tends, tends to kind of go back. Okay. And Eve Tushnet is, is, I think, one of the clearest exemplars of this that she was writing on her blog years ago. I don't remember exactly what year, but she's got a blog where she even says something like, if you move from side B to side A, like Julie Rogers, if you, oh, yeah. uh, you know, apostatize, you, you could even be moving, becoming more, more Christian, not yeah. less, right? Because maybe if you're moving from a place of judgment to a place of love um, or, or whatever, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Matt is face palming. You can't yeah. see it, but yes. Um, then, so, so, and, and I think that's what she's always believed always i don't think that eve has budged an inch from uh, where she was years ago when this whole ball got rolling and i think wes hill will use language like this as well because now he's an episcopal priest right and and he'll uh he'll say well yes i have friends who are in these relationships friends who are side a but they're my brothers and sisters they're right um and i again i don't think that's a shift from where he was wes hill isn't that one reason he left the acna because if I remember, am I remembering this correctly? That he left because he couldn't be in the same church with people who considered uh, yeah, side A he, people non-believers. Right. He, he said that, that in, was, a, in his. He had an interview where he he said that explicitly because they were creating disunity, right? And so he wanted to. Uh, he felt uncomfortable with all the disunity going around. Uh, so apparently, if we're all unified in heresy, this is better than disunity. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of, of things I've been unity in the fires of hell, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, one of the things I've been, I've been really sensitive to since we left, uh, and, and I've noticed this movement not in Revoice or in, in, the, in these circles, but just in other more moderate regions of the ACNA, is this attempt to to recast the debate as Adiaphora, That this, you know, we're, we're talking about mm-hmm. uh, we're talking about things that Christians can disagree about and still be and and still be Christian. So. When I first, I, I I didn't know the language went back that far. I thought, I thought, okay, these side B people are going to go would be missionaries and they're going to try and convert these people back to the or into the faith or back to the faith. And no, right? Well, and, and I think, I mean, here's the thing: there were a lot of different personalities at work, and and sometimes in tension with each other at the beginning of the whole side B project. And a number of those people have since just quietly left, mm. right? And so. And, you know, I've talked with one or two of these people, Bat Channel, I've heard of other Bat Channel conversations where they felt more like what you're articulating there, like, hey, shouldn't we be thinking of ourselves as missionaries? Shouldn't shouldn't there be like attention how we relate to our side A friends? And so I think that that probably played a big role in why those sorts of people left the project, because they could sense that the, the overall pull was not in that direction. Yeah, it's fascinating. That's that's the real danger, I think, for people who get involved in in revoice as either people who are identifying as homosexual or people who are uh, just trying to be allies or however you want to say it. Is is that is that we take something, we take something, we take human sexuality, which is central, one of the, one of the gifts God gave us, the very beginning, so that we could display the gospel in our relationships with each other in a in, in marriages take this this really volatile but also beautiful thing sexuality twist it so that it it no longer points to the gospel pervert it pervert bodies with it um, and then bring it into the church as something we disagree with but it's just a it's just a matter of disagreement with three friends. That's that's so frightening to me. That is that that's my nightmare, is that the, the the evangelical world continues to say by and large, oh well, yes, we disagree with it. But I recognize these people as my brothers and sisters. That's that's the right. death. I yes, I affirm the creed. Yeah. Right. <laughs> what else? What more do you offer yeah. me? I mean, I saw so so Grant Hartley, who's who's a, a a younger voice in these conversations. I saw him on Twitter the other day. He was saying. Look, I, I affirm the creed and I think gay sex is bad. What more do you want from me? <laughs> it's like, <clears throat> okay, great. Uh. <laughs> I have, um, I, I was pulling up this quote. So I did a, a two-part review for North American Anglican earlier this year where I was it, was, it was a retro review. I was looking at this old 
work from around 1970 by a guy who was writing anonymously. He called himself Alex. Had same-sex attraction, specifically was attracted to his best friend, which was really painful and awkward. And so this book called Letters of a Homosexual Christian or The Returns of Love was kind of a working out of that. And a couple people in the side B revoice camp have sort of tried to misappropriate some ideas from that work and point to him as like a, a proto-revoice guy, but he really wasn't in a lot of key ways. And um, people can go check out my review for more details yeah. there. But he really has um, a lot of lovely quotes in there. He writes very, very well. And so I pulled up one in particular that I think makes a great period here. It's pretty short. So here's what Alex says. So in the light of the next world, I see that the torments which make me rebel because God won't explain them are mere details in the grand purpose which he has explained, the bringing of yet another son to glory along the same path by which the eldest son went, the path of maturity through suffering. Isn't it one of the most wretched things about this condition that when you look ahead, the same impossible road seems to continue indefinitely. You're driven to rebellion when you think of there being no point in it and to despair when you think of there being no limit to it. That's why I find it a comfort when I feel desperate or rebellious or both to remind myself of God's promise that one day it will be finished, finished in both senses. He will put a stop to the troubles of this life and he will at the same time complete what he has been doing by means of them. They are neither endless nor pointless. Amen. And it is finished sort of our rallying cry around here. Praise God. <laughs> well, Thank you for listening to Stand Firm this week. Uh, if you'd like to keep the conversation going with us, you can be in touch. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes or send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy and a special thank you to Ann Kennedy and to Pethel McGrew. I'm Nick Lannon and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Oh, 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 oh,